thank you all for being here this Sunday. And I know we got a lot of people traveling, so whether you're here in person or you're joining us online, thank you all for being here. And as uh, Pastor Mike just alluded to, we come here today with heavy hearts. We, we come here after what's been a very long week for me, and I'm sure a lot of you as well. Um, and each of us has our own baggage that we're carrying in today, you know, our own emotions, whether that's grief, whether that's anger or helplessness or hopelessness. We all are bringing a lot here, and we're all coming to seek and to find something here. And whether that's normalcy, some kind of consistency, community, or maybe answers to questions. Um, and this morning, I just I want to hope that we can open a space for the Holy Spirit to just fill this room and to meet those needs, however, in whatever capacity that might be. But before we go further, and um, before we get to Christ's word, and I really want to focus on that this morning, because those are going to be more important than any words I have to share. Um, I just want to take a moment, just take a pause, put all of our baggage to the side, and just, just have a moment to honor those who are going through unimaginable grief right now. And if we could just bow our heads for just half a minute just to reflect on that, I would be greatly appreciative. Thank you. Um, one of the more selfish mornings I have this week is that when I was first requested to do this sermon, I was really excited about it. I was excited to jump into, you know, really complex scripture and to go over the theology of anger and to really just dive in to the complexities of it. Um, because it is a universal feeling. It's something that we're all aware of, whether it's something you run towards or run away from. We've all felt the heaviness of it. We've all felt the pervasiveness of it. Um, but what occurred Tuesday, I quickly realized that it's really impossible to write about relinquishing anger when you're in the midst of anger. Um, it's hard to do. And I thought about what I wanted to say, and you know, I, I don't have anything that I can say that hasn't been said a thousand times. And I don't have anything that's going to heal that kind of evil. Um, but what I do come this morning, and what little I can offer this morning, is in one hand faith, and in the other hand hope. And that faith is that despite knowing how broken and depraved our world can be, that God is good. I do believe that. And in the other hand, we have hope. And in spite of our cynicism and the burden of utility, I have hope that we as God's people have the courage to strive in making this world better each and every day, little by little. But all of that has to start and end with Christ. Um, and I really just want to focus on his words more than my own because I think those are just going to be more beneficial. 
And I'm so thankful for the sermon series that we're doing, this generous life and focusing on the Sermon Mount because really it can't be understated how prolific and impactful this sermon is, not just for Christianity, but for our understanding of morality in general. I mean, it really, it questioned the status quo in a way that we can't begin to overinflate. Um, you know, previously in the ancient world and still in a lot of the world today, you know, those who are blessed are seen as strong, are seen as honorable or prestigious or powerful or have lots of resources and wealth. And Jesus just starts the sermon, as we saw a few weeks ago, with the Beatitudes and says, no, um, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the merciful, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. Those are the blessed ones. And here within this passage, Jesus continues to do that. He continues to challenge the status quo on a very heavy topic, which is murder and anger. And here Christ challenges us and asks us to do the hard task of turning our gaze from other people to ourselves. And from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, hear the word of the Lord. You have heard that I was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. May God add a blessing to the hearing of God's word. And here, too, Christ displays his unique ability to state a simple truth while leaving a very loaded implication. So what is the meaning of this teaching? You know, what are we to gather from, and how do we apply it to our lives this morning and this week and going forward. And I'd be lying if I said there wasn't a temptation to just say it's kind of direct. You know, Jesus has taken a page out of the Jedi handbook. He's saying, let go of your fears, your anger, and your hatred. And that's kind of the affirmation. But it because it does read like that to some extent. It just sounds like another prohibition. It sounds like something that you're not supposed to do. You feel anger, don't feel it. Um, but that's obviously not what Jesus is doing here. There, there's something more than that. Because we see throughout the, the Gospels, we see Jesus' anger, and throughout the Bible, we see God's anger. So there's something more complex going on here. And in the midst of this seeming contradiction, Christ successfully does what he does so well which is making us think. Within this sermon series, we have moved past the generous word, which we explored in the Gospel of John, and we've moved to the generous life. And here we have to ask ourselves, is this passage simply telling us to avoid anger? 
or is there something more generous to be had from it? Is there something here that can help us to enjoy life, to live more fully, and to live with more righteousness and closer proximity to our God? And I think there's a lot here, and I, I just want to start with the scripture and some of the context, and then we can get into what that might be. Um, the scripture starts out by affirming to the people what they already know, that murder is wrong. You know, there's nothing too profound there, nothing too new to bring to the table. That's probably if there ever was a universal rule accepted by most cultures, despite their differing definitions of what murder is, that would probably be the most accepted. But he's talking to a very unique group of people here. He's talking to Jewish and Hebrew people under Roman rule. These are people who are not strangers to the sufferings of violence. And Jesus has a very hard lesson for them. He addresses the crowd and states, not only is it sinful to act in anger or to murder, but those who harbor the emotion in their hearts are just as guilty. That's a tough thing to hear. Certainly would have been for those people and even for us today. That's a hard pill to swallow. Because anger is so universal, it feels so targeted, it feels so condemning. And I don't want to belittle what Jesus is saying or, or water it down. Jesus is pointing to the fact that these acts do not come from a void. They come from thoughts which come from feelings. And as heinous as some of these acts are, they, they come from a feeling that resides in all of us. And it's something to not take lightly. And Jesus is bringing a mirror to each and every one of us and showing us the source of that suffering is within us too. But the more I thought about it and the more I meditated on this passage, I found it less and less condemning because I felt like there was something more than just anger going on here. And as the passage goes on, the focus really begins to shift away from anger. Eventually, we get to a point in the passage where there's this courtroom drama almost. And towards the end, we start to see Jesus bring up another issue, another problem. And I think the problem in this passage is in anger. Anger is certainly the mechanism which creates the problem, and it's the mechanism which maintains the problem. And we're going to talk about anger. But really, the problem is our inability to reconcile. It is our stubbornness and our lack of will to move towards reconciliation, towards resolution, towards restorative justice. And the beauty of this passage is that not only does it condemn anger, but it provides a blueprint that leads us towards reconciliation and towards the more generous life that we have been looking at and looking for. Now, though anger might not be the problem, it does need to be understood. And one of the things we addressed earlier is a bit of the elephant in the room, this contradiction between what we do with anger throughout the Bible. And as we have mentioned, Jesus was not a stranger to the emotion. Yes, he said, turn the other cheek, but he also, not too far after, was flipping tables in the temple. And not a betting man, but if I had to guess, what he was feeling in that moment was more closely akin to anger than it was, say, compassion. 
God also has more than a fair share of moments throughout the Old and New Testament where his anger is pretty explicitly stated. Um, it's not hidden. Um, so a full account of Scripture doesn't seem to consider anger inherently bad. There is room for righteous anger. But what does that look like? What does that look like for us? There's a great quote that's attributed to St. Augustine that I think is both timely and helps us to kind of understand practically what righteous anger looks like for us. And it says, Hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they do not remain as they are. That's not my core affirmation this morning, but I do want to read that again because that is something that I want everyone to take away. Hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they do not remain as they are. So now this is a very niche form of anger, this, this righteous anger, and I want to bracket that. Because that's not the anger that we're most familiar with, if we're being honest with ourselves. And that's not the anger that Jesus is talking about here. The passage goes on to better define this this more worldly sense of the word. And it says, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So pretty passionate, powerful words. Now, to clarify the word Raka there means more or less worthless. It means someone who is just void of value. Um, and with these examples, we start to understand more of what Christ is alluding to with anger. There, there are some commonalities in these examples. And we see this in our own lives. When we're talking down to someone in anger, when we're belittling them, what we really do is we're taking their value from them. We are slowly stripping them of their humanity. And that is the real danger of anger. Because when you strip someone of their humanity, the evils we can do are untold. And that is why Jesus is speaking so harshly about this, because he knows the consequences that can come from it. And that is a very, very dangerous place to be in relation to others. But it does lead us towards the first step of reconciliation. And that's for all parties, whether you're the accused or the accuser, our love has to outweigh our anger. We have to be able to see people as those made in the image of God first and foremost, not as adversaries. And that's the first step towards reconciliation that component of love and empathy that is necessary. The passage goes on to give us two more components, I believe, both necessary for reconciliation, and one is attributed to each party this time, the one who is at fault and the one who is accusing. And what's interesting is the main party Jesus addresses here is actually the wrongdoer. It's the one who's at fault. And as someone who has had a few faults of my own, um, it's really refreshing to see that Jesus isn't condemning of the person. In fact, Jesus is actually giving them a cheat sheet of basically how 
to get out of the mistake and the bad choices they've made, how to get towards reconciliation. He's trying to help the wrongdoer here. And that's something I think we can apply to our own lives in giving ourselves grace and giving other people grace. But he's giving these people advice and Christ tells them what to do in verses 23 through 25. And he uses some really particular verbs. Christ tells them to remember, to leave, to go, and to be reconciled. And those verbs are directions for one thing in particular, and that's accountability. Accountability is the hinge on which the door of reconciliation swings. And here we, we see the process of taking accountability. One, remember. Acknowledge what we've done. Own it. Two is repentance. Leave where you're at and go to where you need to go. Turn away from where you are and head in the right direction. And three, be reconciled. Apologize. Make amends. Let it known to the person that you have wronged that you understand that you've wronged them. But that's hard to do in the midst of anger. Because being accused of something, that's going to make you angry. And if we let that blind us, then that's just going to stop the process of reconciliation. Cold in its tracks. And it's a real obstacle from the generous gift of reconciliation that is something that has to be released. And we do that through the empathy that God has given us and reminding ourselves of the love that we should have for one another. And the last piece of this blueprint offered here is for the accuser themselves. And it's also needed for reconciliation, and that is forgiveness. It's grace. If we can ask others to find the humility to ask for forgiveness, we have to find the humility to give forgiveness. Christ says in Matthew chapter 6, but if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. It's rightfully important to Christ and to God that we have the capacity and the hearts to forgive. Christ wants matters of anger settled. He doesn't want our lives to be eroded by anger. He wants them to be filled with peace and love, and anger is always going to be in the way of that. And whether that's anger towards God or a loved one or a family member or a coworker or a boss or your country or the world at whole, God wants your anger settled, and he wants it settled correctly. And that forgiveness is such a necessary component. So I want us to think now, both as a church, both as a community, and also as individuals, where is our anger? Who is it directed at? And what is it that is allowing it to persist? I'm willing to bet it's one of these three pieces. Maybe if we're honest with ourselves, maybe the reason we're still angry is because the person or the people we're angry at we see as less than. 
Maybe the anger persists because we can't sacrifice our pride for humility. Maybe we don't see that we're in the wrong. Or maybe it's because we can't give grace even though we've received it. We're too hurt. We're not ready to do that yet. So the anger persists. I know for me, it's, it's the latter. It's the giving grace and forgiveness that I struggle with. Accountability I can do all day. I, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, so I've learned how to apologize and make amends for them uh, with great experience. And on top of that, I'm just typically a very passive, non-confrontational person in general. I mean, you could literally accuse me of starting World War I, and I would be like, I can see how you think my hand was involved in that. I'm sorry for whatever I might have had to do with it. I will assess myself and look into it. Um, it's true. There's, there's a stand-up comedian named John Mulaney, and he has a bit in one of his stand-ups where he says, you could spill hot soup into my lap, and I would probably apologize to you. And nothing has ever felt more true to me. <laughs> but giving grace is hard for me. Um, I hate the feeling of anger. I know some people run towards anger. I'm non-confrontational. I hate it. It makes me feel physically nauseous. Also, I'm an angry crier. Is anyone an angry crier? Yeah, it's the worst trait in the world to have when you get flustered and you tear up. Um, so I, I hate anger. And it takes a lot to get me to that place. So when people get me there, it's really hard for me to let go. And that's something I need to work on. But I think all of us have something here to work on because we all have anger, especially today, I'm sure. And it's just something I want us to think on. I want us to walk away here not wanting anger, not being content being in the midst of anger, not seeking anger, but wanting what Christ wants for us, which is a generous life, a life where we can love instead of hate, a life where we can sacrifice pride for humility, and a life where not only we can be forgiven, but also forgive. Let us pray. God, we come to you as a community, as a church. Lord, we thank you for your words. We thank you for your mercy and your forgiveness and your love. Lord, we don't deserve it. We deserve your anger, God. But you teach us to be better because you are good. Help us to learn from your ways. Help us to love instead of hate. May you walk patiently with us down this path. May you walk with us hand in hand, God. Lord, may you teach us your ways because we can stand here and we can know what's right and wrong but our feelings are so overwhelming. And God, we just pray for your spirit to be with everyone here. May you hold them the way that they need to be held today. 
May you be with all those that call upon you and those who do not, Lord. May you be with all those that you have created with love and intent and care and made in your image. God, may you help us to relinquish our anger and may you give us the courage to make this world a better place, to live a little more like you each and every day. God, we thank you for all that you do. Even in the midst of the unknown, we trust you and we love you because we know that you love us. Because we are your beloved. Help us to be eternally thankful for that. God, we pray this in your holiest name. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.